The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missioday.org. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. And that's where we'll pick up next week. This is the word of the Lord. God, I pray that you would take your word and and use it and multiply it in our hearts and our minds so that we could see you for who you are, see us for who we are, and respond with faith and repentance. Amen. Um, First thing I wanna just draw our attention to, and so we'll have three different headings as we work through this text where we'll make a statement and then we'll, we'll dialogue about that statement for uh, just a few moments and then we'll move on to the next statement, all right? The first one is this. Unity is explained in calling. Unity is, is explained in calling. As we look back through our text, we see that uh, we need to walk worthy. We need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What have we been called to? And he says, with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in Love, verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so we see that because of our calling, as we learned about in Ephesians chapter number one, Ephesians chapter number two, and Ephesians chapter number three, God has called us, and in calling us, he's united us to the Father. And in uniting us to the Father because of his work, he's broken on the walls that separated us. He's, he's rid us of all the feelings and, and suffering that keeps us from uh, uh, engaging well in relationship with one another. And he's removed those things from us. And he's brought us inside and he's united us as a body, as a group of believers. And he's placed us in his church. We have been called to union with Christ, and as a result, we have been united to the other believers who have also been united to Christ, right? And so Ephesians chapter number one, three, where all of the indicatives, our position, and what Paul over and over told us in Ephesians chapter number one through three was that our position is that we are a united people of Christ. Our union with Christ gives us the blessings of God. Our union with Christ destroys the hostility with the people that we have animosity towards. And he's brought us inside. We have a belonging. We have a place. We have a home. We have a family. We reside in a kingdom. And we're not orphaned anymore. Right? And there's huge blessings in that. And because of that calling, we have a unity that is unlike anything else. And so then the imperative, if the indicative is our position is that we are united people in Christ, then the natural application or the natural response to that is our practice of unity being expressed in our conduct in response to the unity that Jesus has given us. So it's important for us to understand as Paul opens up this letter, he's very clear with his words where we should be eager to maintain the unity. 
And so if we're maintaining the unity, that doesn't mean that we've manufactured the unity, right? We haven't, we haven't developed the unity. We haven't bought the unity. Christ in his work in dying on the cross, raising from the dead, has brought us unity. So we are not called to make unity. We're not called to manufacture unity. But we are called, as Paul instructs the Ephesians, to maintain unity, right? That's an, important, that's an important thing to note as we work through really the entirety of this chapter, even though we're really only drawing attention to verse one through six this week. As one new body of people called out of the world and united in Christ, Paul instructs us to walk worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ. And he doesn't just leave us hanging. Because I know that that word has, that phrase and sentence has brought a lot of confusion in the Christian faith because we understand, because the first three chapters just got done telling us that we are sinful people, right? We were people that were dead in our sins and Christ had to bring us back to life. We were people disconnected from God because of our sins and Christ had to bring us back into connection with God. Like we understand that Christ has made our peace. Christ has given us life. Christ has done all these things. So how in any way, shape or fashion, if we weren't recipients of our worth, can we now walk worthy in the manner in which we are called? Right? It's confusing. And it's by God's grace, as verse seven so neatly tells us. But we do this practically in life, empowered by the Spirit as a result of God's grace by behaving in a way that begins to really reflect what we believe. So in Christ, we've already been given our position. As believers in Christ, once we've been made Christians, we're essentially learning to live up to the name that we've already been given. We're already part of the family. We've already received the new name. We've already received the new nature. We've already received the new life. And the Christian life is really a working of God's power, a working of God's grace to unite us to himself, unite us to his people, so that over time we grow. We're not as sinful. Our affections do not wander. We begin to look more like Jesus every day. And God uses his word, his people, his church, and himself to navigate us, to convict us of sin, to point us towards confession and repentance so that we grow. And the sins that we did five years ago aren't the same as the sins we're doing today because we've grown and Christ has given us victory as a result of that. That's what it means to walk worthy of this calling that you've already given. Learn to live up to the name that you've already been given. Learn to be a part of the family in a way that brings unity because you've already been brought into the family. You don't have to work to earn your place. You've already been given your place. So our natural response is to become who we really are. That's what we're saying. Our world is often calling us. We understand that because our world is often calling us to be true to ourselves, isn't it? And the Christian message really isn't that much different than that. But there is one major distinction. That distinction is that we aren't to, to be true to our sinful selves, but to our redeemed selves. And so we're supposed to be true to who we are in Christ, not who we once were before Christ, and we do that, and that is our calling as a Christian. As we mature, we begin to look more like Christ. Why is this distinction so important? Because being true to our sinful selves, our pre-Christ redeemed selves, the, the Christ is not 
come into our lives, we're still dead in our sins, if we're faithful to that person, our old person, it leaves us disconnected. It leaves us independent. It leaves us isolated, purposeless, and condemned, right? We see that. We spent three chapters digging into the value that we have being united together as the body of Christ. And there's power in that. And God works himself in that. There's sanctification that grows. And that's why it's vitally important that we don't try to navigate our Christian faith by ourselves. He's given us people to do this life with, to process his word with, so that we can have a clearer picture of what it is that he's leading us and teaching us to do, and so that's my plug for community during this month, is get connected to a group of people that you can do life with. Draw our attention to verse three, where we see that unity is active and not passive. Unity is active and not passive. If we are a united body of people in Christ, then we must be united. Right? But unity doesn't happen just by being passive and imagining it to happen. Paul instructs the Ephesians here in this verse to eagerly maintain. That word eagerly is with enthusiasm, with excitement, protecting the unity that Christ has given us. Right, And so we see that this morning our big idea is that believers must eagerly maintain the unity given to us by the Father because of the work of the Son and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is the church's calling. That is what we are supposed to be doing, is maintaining as a body of believers the unity that Christ has already secured for us and already given to us in himself. But how do we maintain unity? How do we maintain unity? I wanna draw our attention to verses two and three, and I want us to see that unity is expressed in conduct. Unity is expressed in conduct. Unity is not manufactured, it's maintained, it's given to us in Christ, but how do we work this out? How do we eagerly maintain? And we see that we do this through our conduct, the things that we do. Because the more we look like Jesus individually, the more we live like Jesus relationally inside of the church, and the more united we ultimately become. As we grow in our faith as individuals and we grow in our faith relationally with the other people that God has put around us inside of this body, the more united we will become, right? And so Paul gives us a couple things here uh, that expresses our unity. What should we be doing to maintain this unity that God has already given us? First thing I wanna draw our attention to is that gentle humility expresses unity. Gentle humility expresses unity. Interestingly enough, the term humility was rather uncommon in first century Greek literature, right? Humility was, uh, when, when humility did appear in any writings or any cultural uh, history reports of this first century Greek world, it carried a rather negative connotation. Pride was more highly valued in the culture of Paul's writing, and humility was often ridiculed, right? It wasn't a good thing to be humble as it is today. But even as we understand humility, is it really that much different today? Is humility really as valued in our society as pride? 
And I wanna interject just the thought here that today uh, it, pride is, is equally as valued and humility is ridiculed, but what we've done is we've learned how to kind of navigate that world. And so today we just wear humility as a prideful badge of honor or we walk in a false humility, thinking less of ourselves, talking less of ourselves in a way uh, to get sympathy, to get attention, to get affection for other people. And so humility oftentimes in the way that we live our lives on a day-to-day basis is really just a prideful expression. And Paul here is not talking about that kind of humility, that kind of humility that uh, boasts itself as pride. Paul's talking more along these lines. Tim Keller is a theologian and a pastor, was a pastor in New York, and now he's a, a, a professor at a, a seminary uh, up near New York. He says this, he says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less, right? Because pride works itself out in thinking more of myself, more, I'm more able and I'm more gifted and I'm more anything than I actually am. But pride also works itself out in a false humility that says I'm worthless, I'm useless, I have no value. And we know that we're all created in God's image. So we all have value, we all have gifts, we all have worth. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week right? But humility, gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's just simply thinking of myself less. Biblical humility is essentially preferring the well-being of others to our own well-being. So Paul says, maintain unity by being humbly, uh, humbly gentle. He says, think of yourself less and prefer the well-being of others to your own well-being. It's placing the needs of others ahead of our needs. It's placing the comfort of others ahead of our comfort. Not just ideally in a way that we think about others, but practically, right? So one way, just really easy example, this works itself out, is each week we tear down everything immediately following the gathering. And so we can look at, uh, oh, I'm not on the schedule today, so I'm not going to jump in and help. But there are many people that jump in and help understanding that if I jump in and help, even for just a few minutes, it lightens the load of the people that are scheduled. And what is it? That's a gentle, humble humility that is putting the needs of others before themselves because I can take some of my time, but I'm gonna save some of their time. I'm gonna save some of their energy. And that's real simple and easy, but it's just a practical way of preferring one another over the needs of ourselves. Paul's encouraging the Ephesians and encouraging us to walk and maintain a unity that looks like that, but also to do so with gentleness, not harshly or begrudgingly. The word gentleness in this text is the same word as meekness. And so sometimes when we hear meekness, we immediately draw our attention to weakness, right? But we know that meekness is not weakness, it's using your strength in a humble and gentle way for the advancement of somebody else. And so some of us are really strong people, we have strong personalities, we have strong backs, we have strong thoughts. Are we using that strength to build up somebody else? 
That's what Paul's talking about. Not begrudgingly being humble, not begrudgingly being gentle, but using our strength in a way that benefits our brothers and our sisters. The opposite of humility is, that the, is the idea that we are in competition within the church. But Paul here is, is, is saying again, like, guys, you, you, the first three chapters, you've all learned about your position in Christ. You don't have to jockey. You don't have to throw people under the bus. You don't have to run over people to become part of this church. Like, you are part of it because I've called you to it. And I've shed my blood so that you could be a participant in it. Like, we don't have to jockey with one another. We don't have to compete with one another, Right? And I'm a competitive person when it comes to sports and things like that, but in the Christian life, man, there should not be the competition. We should be building each other up. We should be cheering each other on. And that's what Paul's getting at. That is a way in which we maintain unity. But patience also expresses unity. And so we'll maintain patience if, we'll maintain unity if we're patient, Right? Lack of patience displays a lack of unity. Lack of unity and lack of patience display a lack of love. Patience is something that everyone wants to receive, but very few people want to give, right? When we're growing, when we're struggling, when we're sinful, when we've been wrong, and when we've wronged another person, we want that person to be extremely patient with us, letting us ask for forgiveness, letting us repent of our sin and and take as much time as it takes for me to come to the realization that I need to make it right with my brother. But when somebody's wronged us, right? The nails come out, we get, like, we get stirred up, we get fired up, our, our, our eyes turn red, we, we isolate, we ignore, we disregard everything that person's ever said or done to us because we're not being patient with them. We're patient for the growth that we need and we're, f- we're quick to not give patience to the growth that other people need. The opposite of patience is comparison. Comparison. See, because we will not be patient with people whom we expect to live up to the exact standards that we have set for ourselves. Nor will we be patient with ourselves as we continually are comparing our lives with the lives of others. So church has no place for comparison. No place for comparison. It robs our patience when we start expecting everybody to do the things exactly the way that we should do them, to be on the same growth trajectory that we are. We learned a lot of hard life lessons, and this brother or this sister might be a very new Christian and maybe hasn't time, had the time to learn those life lessons. And so sometimes they offend us. We need to be patient. Paul's encouraging the saints to maintain unity by being patient with one another. Right? And then he goes on, he gives us one more thing uh, that's a practical way that we can show unity by doing these things. Last thing here is forbearing love expresses unity. Forbearing love expresses unity. This means to put up with one another. It means to put up with one another. It means that our commitment to them because of the unity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ means that when they wrong us, we put up with it. When they harm us, we put up with it. 
We don't run from each other. We don't isolate from each other. We don't hide from each other. We lean in because my love for that brother is stronger than the wrong that he's done because the unity that we have wasn't because of the actions that he did or did not do towards me. The unity that we have is because of what Christ has done. Right, And so we understand that Christ loves us so much he went to all the links of the cross to lay down his life, to pick his life back up so that you and I could be part of this family. You and I could be part of this body. And so when somebody disregards us or somebody wrongs us or somebody challenges us and challenges our love, we shouldn't run from that. We should run to that. When we experience conflict within the church, we don't run away from our brothers and sisters in Christ. We lean in, we walk through our differences, and we endure in love. Contention is opposite of forbearing love because we will not lovingly forbear with God's people if we're contentious and we're stirring up strife. And those of you that have been around the church long enough, you know what this does separates people, isolates people, splits churches because contention, because strife, because of talking, because of talking behind people's back and talking to other people instead of talking to the person you have a problem with, right? It does terrible things. Some of us have been the recipient of that. So we don't want that. Paul's idea for the Christian church was never to have that. He was saying, maintain the unity that Christ has given you by loving one another, with endurance, forbearing with one another, right? And so as we examine the expression of unity that Paul's talking about, it's real simple to see how we maintain his unity. We put other people ahead of ourselves, we're extremely patient with one another, and we just have an enduring love that is united together by Christ and not even just the, the frailty of our commitment, but it's Christ who's united us, and so all we need to do is maintain that. We know all too well that that doesn't always happen, does it? We're sinful people, and so we wrong one another. We're sinful people, so we're not patient with one another. We're sinful people, and so we're not always humble. We're not always willing to prefer the the best for somebody else if it means something worse for us. There's good news. There's good news. Next thing I want us to notice is four, verse four through six, is that unity is established in confession. Unity is established in confession. Who are we united to? What is it that unites us? It's the confession here Paul gives, one body. He says we're one body. We confess that we're one body. We share a common existence in Christ's church. We are diverse in our backgrounds. We are diverse in our gifting. We're diverse in our personalities. We're diverse in our uh, ability to comprehend information. But because of the work of Christ, we are all united as one. Right? That there should be value in that. There should be beauty in that. He goes on to say that we're one spirit. We're one spirit. We share a common origin in the Holy Spirit's work. The Spirit is the one who creates unity and it is, then is the one who empowers us to maintain it. There's not a soul in here who came to know Jesus aside from the Spirit drawing him to himself. 
Spirit is the one who got us here. The Spirit is what it brings our unity. The Spirit is the one that empowers us to continue to maintain our unity. Paul goes on, he says, we're of one hope. We're of one hope. He talked about this hope in Ephesians chapter one, verse three, a lot. We're called to a common hope. We share a common hope, and that hope is in Christ. Formerly, we were without hope, Ephesians chapter number two, verse 12 tells us, until we were called to Christ. And now because we have been called to Christ, we can have hope and we must live in a manner worthy of that hope and of that calling, right? Then he goes on to say that we're of one Lord. Believers confess and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. When the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, what they were saying was, Caesar is not Lord. And that brought huge ramifications for him, didn't it? So we read Fox's Book of Martyrs and we hear about the apostles and we hear about the early church fathers who were murdered and, and just obscene and horrible ways because their confession of one Lord meant that whoever else was trying to be Lord could no longer be Lord. And so that unites us, and that should be a reminder that as we make other things and other people our Lord, it really is breeding disunity in the church because we are a people who are of one Lord. When Jewish Christians said this, they were boldly identifying Jesus with the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. This wasn't merely an empty creedal affirmation for early believers. Like we've already said, this confession could literally take their lives. It's meaningful. It's valuable. This confession is what unites us. Paul goes on to say that we're of one faith. This creed reminds us that we embrace the essential truths together. Faith here refers to the body of truth we believe. And so when minor differences come in, we go back to what is foundational for our faith. What is foundational for our faith? And we unite on those things. And so when we differ on uh, uh, minute details of theological positions, and we often do, right? Christians are the worst that disagree about a lot of things. But if we can agree to the foundations of our faith, those early creeds that really spelled out what does it mean to be a Christian? And Paul says that the church is united as one faith. And so denomination shouldn't keep us from relationship and, and differences and minute details of theology shouldn't keep us from fellowship. And it should be uniting together God's church, the entire body of Christ for the advancement of his kingdom. But so often we see division amongst other churches. And oftentimes we see division even amongst ourselves. I had a coffee a couple weeks ago with a gentleman who uh, had heard Missio has a pretty good reputation for strict and very clear theological alignment, which we do. And we don't apologize about that. We, we're people that love theology and there's meaning about it, but there was a difference in something that most of the pastors held as not, a, not, a, not a, like a, an, an essential to your faith belief, but something that's valuable to us and we, use the, we understand scripture through this particular point of theology and he had a strong disagreement with this point of theology. 
And he said, man, do I have, is there, is there a place for me inside of a church like Missio if I don't believe that? And I said, man, that's foolishness. The world has lied to us. Strong denominational churches that are absent of gospel truth have lied to us and saying that we need to divide over everything. Paul's saying, no, we're of one faith. Those things that are foundational to the gospel are those things that we unite about. We don't need to separate over other minute things that aren't gospel things, right? We're of one faith. We're of one baptism. We share a common experience of being spiritually identified with Christ in baptism. And we're one God, the Father. As his adopted children, we share the same Father. We're members of the same family. So we should treat each other like that should treat each other like family. Some of you are scared to death by that because of bad experiences within your family. This is why the good news of the gospel is so important. Unity established in anything but Jesus will be a temporary unity. But unity established in Jesus will endure eternally. Why is that? Why is that? When we don't unite around different theological streams, when we don't unite around different denominational lines, when we don't uh, unite around uh, music preferences and things like that, but we unite around Jesus, we know that Jesus never changes and Jesus is really the only reason any of us are part of this body in the first place. Jesus bonds us together in peace. Verse number number three says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit In the bond of peace, what is that bond? That bond is Jesus. In Jesus' death, he broke down, as Ephesians chapter two tells us, all the dividing walls of hostility that separated us from God and separated us from one another. And in his resurrection, he brings redemption, he brings forgiveness, he brings new life, and with that new life, a peace for all of us. Bringing peace between us and God and bringing peace between one another. It's a beautiful thing. Then he leaves the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk in the unity given to us in his death, his burial, his resurrection. The triune God not only creates, secures, and empowers the unity that we have as believers, but also serves as the ultimate picture of unity. That's the beauty. Jesus is our victory and God is a beautiful picture of the unity that he has provided in his victory that he's given us. As the church is characterized by the same unity that characterizes the triune God, it becomes a testament to the watching world that surrounds us. As Jesus was nearing the um, end of his earthly ministry, John, the, the gospel writer of John, records in John 17 one of his most passionate last prayers. And as part of that prayer in verse 21, Jesus prays this. He says, may they, they being the church, may the church, may they, the church, all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the unity that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit continually experience. And his prayer is that they, the church, all be one, as you, the Father, are in me, 
and I am in you, may they, the church, also be one in us. May the church also be one in us. So what he's saying here, may, may they, the church, have the same unity that you and I experience, Father, and may they all be one as the church because they are united to us. But here's the fascinating part. And then the verse ends like this. He says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Let's be united together as we're united together in Christ so that the world may know that God the Father sent God the Son to redeem the world of their sins. That's what Jesus is praying for. And really the last days of his life he put such a strong value on this unity that we have as a body of believers, equal to, if not more, emphasis than Paul does. So what do we do this? How do we respond? How do we practice these gospel truths? First, very quickly, we're gonna recap. Uh, the first part will be just a little recap of some things that we've already hit throughout the text. First, we contend to maintain unity among the believing. We need to be a people that contend to maintain unity among the believing. We do this through humble gentleness. Do you put the well-being of others above your own well-being? That's what Paul's asking. You put the well-being of others above your own well-being. Do we think about ourselves? Second thing he gave us was patience. So as you examine your life, what are some areas in your life or who are some people in your life, more importantly, that you have been extremely impatient with? Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your children, maybe it's uh, other family members, maybe it's other people in the church. Maybe you have a lot of difficulty with a family in your community. And forbearing love. Who have you isolated yourself from in response to conflict that you've had with them? Who have you isolated yourself from in response to conflict that you've had with them? What is keeping you, even today, from going to these people, confessing your sin towards them, repenting to them, and asking them for their forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is a tough thing to ask for, isn't it? Because we're giving power to the other person to actually forgive us. And turning over power to somebody else is something that deeply, deeply frightens us, doesn't it? So we should contend to maintain unity among the believing, but we should also cultivate unity among the unbelieving. Right, But let's remember, we said early on, that unity that is founded and established in anything other than Jesus is a temporary unity. We can have unity about things that we like, but what if our likes or their likes changes, right? Unity that is founded and established in Jesus endures eternally. So how do we cultivate unity among the unbelieving? We're gonna cultivate unity among the unbelieving. We're gonna declare the glory of God. How are we gonna do that? We do that, John records Jesus praying as we walk in humility, as we walk in patience, 
as we walk in forbearing love with one another who are on the inside. The glory of God is put on display to those on the outside. And the Spirit uses them, uses this, this unity that we have as the body of believers to draw unbelieving men and women to himself. A lot of us have a lot of friends that don't know Jesus and our, our affinity for craft beer, our affinity for good whiskey, good music, good hangouts, good whatever is really what's uniting us. Nothing will fade and those unities will be temporary. And so we must put on display for them the unity that we experience in the body and we do that by inviting people in. Inviting people in. Let them see us wrestle with conflict in a way that doesn't end with us never being friends again, but ends in confession of sin, true repentance, and authentic forgiveness. The world knows nothing of this and desperately wants this because they don't know how to handle conflict. Paul has instructed the church here in Ephesians on how to handle their conflicts by being a united people, prefer one another, prefer the well-being of one another, who are patient with one another and have an enduring love that's rooted in Christ, not in ourselves. The church is God's church, comprised of God's people as the result of God's work and exists for God's glory. God has unified us. Let us contend for the visible, tangible expression of this unity secured for us in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit.